This message was recorded at North 2012, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Very God, um, because for one thing, if you think about, um, let's say the Human Genome Project, this is a very impressive mapping of the entire human genome. The first director of this project was, uh, uh, well, we have Francis Crick and James Watson. So Watson was the first, Jim Watson was the first director of the Human Genome Project, and he was a convinced atheist. But the second director of the Human Genome Project was um, Francis Collins, who's an evangelical Christian. So immediately, we're thinking, hang on a minute, you're working on the same scientific project, you're both doing equally good science, one of you is an atheist, the other one's an evangelical Christian, it's quite unlikely that science has buried God. Um, and I think that this whole question, there's, there's a bit of a trade-off here. So you could say, well, um, the kettle is boiling, that's a fact. And why is the kettle boiling? And so one view might be, well, the kettle's boiling uh, because actually at 100 degrees at room temperature or at sea level, um, you know, water boils, and that's one explanation. But an equally good explanation is that the water is boiling because I want a cup of tea. So these are both equally good explanations. I mean, similarly, um, let's imagine I give you a choice, and I say, okay, um, here is on the stage, let's imagine, a Model T Ford car, um, you know, the, the first prototype made by... Um, uh, the Ford Motor Company back in the last century. And I say, look, there's two possible ways whereby this car could come to exist. One way is that the laws of physics and mechanical engineering are such that that would explain how the car came to exist. Another way is that there was a man called Henry Ford who intended to create a motor car. Now, you and I listen to all that and think, well, you know, both explanations are equally valid. It doesn't have to be either or. So this whole idea that science has buried God is kind of based, I think, on the new atheist agenda that, these are all, that they want to force us into an either-or, either science or God. And I think just the sheer example of the Human Genome Project with Watson and with Collins shows you know, it could be both. I think it's a worldview issue. Um, I'm not sure it's actually all about the science, that science disproves God. I think there's a worldview that says only natural explanations are valid. Nothing supernatural could ever be permitted. And there's another view that says, well, it could be both and. You could have how explanations, that would be all science, but then you could have a bigger kind of why question, and God could be a valid answer to the why question. So those are some preliminary thoughts. Um, it might be that we have more people than chairs uh, for this seminar, uh, because yesterday a whole lot of other people came. If you've got a space next to you, or if you could kind of do that thing where you move in to create the spaces on the ends, that might help. Um, I think we have 100 chairs, and we've got about 90 people. So great. Okay, well, it is 3 o'clock, and... Um, You've very kindly pitched up for this seminar on the subject of hasn't science buried God? And um, let me just explain what I'm hoping to do in the next hour. We will finish at 4 o'clock, incidentally, if you have a secret fear that this is such a massive subject, he could go on forever. I won't actually go on forever. I will stop at 4. So what I'm hoping to do, so you've got, you'll have a roadmap in your mind of where we are in the seminar, is I'm hoping to look at three things in this next hour. Firstly, I'm hoping to look 
at the question of the origin of the universe. Secondly, I'm hoping, and then at the end of that section, I'll take questions. So 20 minutes in, we'll have quite a long time of questions. Second thing I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to look at the origin of organic life. And then once again, we'll pause and we'll take questions. And the third thing I'm hoping to do is to ask uh, a question all about evolution, uh, common descent, uh, and I'm hoping to have some Q&A at the end of that. So that gives you an idea of where we're going over the next hour. Okay, so I'm sure people will join us as we're going, but we're cool with that. Let's pitch up and let's um, head onto the runway and start taxiing and we'll, we'll take off if that's okay. Okay, so just a little bit of my background. My name is Adrian Holloway. I'm based at Christchurch, London. And uh, when I became a Christian a number of years ago now, uh, in my excitement, I told a friend, uh, this friend in particular was a friend who lived near me called Armit Popat. And I told Armit about the difference that Jesus had made in my life. That's great, he replied, but it's not for me. I'm not religious, he said. I'm a scientist. A bit later on, I got talking to another friend of mine called Andy Porter. Andy said, I don't believe in God. I believe in evolution. It's a fact. They've found the fossils. Another friend uh, is Jason Brogdon, still a good friend of mine today. He said he was really pleased about my newfound faith. But he added, one day, he said, science will explain everything. So I think there's probably at least two reasons why you might have come to our seminar this afternoon. First reason why you might have come is because you might have come because you quite like to know what can we say to Armit, what can we say to Andy, what can we say to Jason. I mean, we know as Christians we believe that these people need Jesus, but they've put Jesus in a box called religion and as far as they're concerned, there are only really two types of people in the world. There are normal people like them, and they rely on science, and they rely on facts. And then, yes, there are abnormal people, and they rely on faith, and that's called religion. Now, quite understandably, they don't see why they should jump from the sensible, realistic, rational world, a cerebral, evidential world of science, into what they see as the slightly bizarre, pie-in-the-sky world of religious belief. A second reason why we might have come to this seminar is because we want answers ourselves. I mean, let's face it, folks, much of the science that we come across on television, for example, or in the newspapers, does give the distinct impression that science has delivered a knockout blow, well, at the very least of the book of Genesis. It, you know, reading the newspaper sometimes or watching Channel 4, you do get the impression that science has buried God. Maybe you're wondering, you know, am I supposed to believe in the Bible with a massive leap of faith? Perhaps you have a friend who says, look, Time plus chance plus billions of years equals people. And so we human beings, as a result, are the random, unexpected product of a blind process. Now, the word that's most often used to describe this process is the word evolution. Um, and in their thinking, evolution explains everything. And so in their view... There's no need to believe in God. Belief in God is redundant, superfluous, unnecessary. And so for many people, and certainly for the new atheists, it is a relatively short step from science 
to atheism. Now, there are two questions that I tend to ask to people who say to me that science has buried God or that science has disproved the Bible, and here's the first. How come the universe exists? Okay, we're going to take about 15 minutes on this question. Now, life revolves around cause and effect. So why should any of us come to believe that the universe came into existence for absolutely no reason at all? Now, bear in mind that evolutionary theory, evolution on a, on a big scale, macroevolutionary theory, says nothing at all about the mega question of how come God exists. Evolutionary theory starts with all the universe already in existence and all the essential building blocks of life conveniently in place. So let's look at a bit of background on this subject. Two or three hundred years ago, atheists used to argue that the universe was just there. They described it as a brute fact. Just accept it, they said. It's just there. It always has been there. And they used to argue in this way because at the time, the universe was thought to be locked in a so-called static or steady state. Then along came Albert Einstein. Einstein changed everything because he discovered that the universe is not actually locked in a static or steady state. He discovered that the universe is actually expanding, a bit like an inflating balloon. And so his, um, his theory was confirmed by an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble. Hubble observed in 1929 that the other galaxies are moving away from us, just like on the surface of an inflating balloon, and that the universe is expanding. So seeing as it is expanding, by about the mid-1960s, a scientific consensus had emerged that at one time the universe must have had a beginning. You know, it's in, at some point in the distant past, it must have been much smaller than it is. And this beginning moment, this beginning moment does look like creation. So it doesn't look like any more that the universe is eternal. In fact, it's quite hard to find a cosmologist today who argues that the universe is eternal. So this would be a pretty good example of how a scientific discovery has made it easier to believe in God. So in 1965, they found the background radiation from this beginning moment. This beginning moment does look suspiciously like Genesis 1 verse 3, where God says, let there be light, and there was light. So let me see if I can put this to you another way. Let's imagine I said to you, millions of years ago, there was absolutely nothing. But then one fraction of a second later, there was a huge purple carrot in the sky the size of Leeds. Now, I would put it to you that the sudden appearance of the huge purple carrot the size of Leeds would demand some sort of explanation Atheism has no adequate explanation for the dramatic arrival of the universe. Now, as I'm sure you know, the most popular current model of understanding how the universe began to exist is the Big Bang Theory. Many Christians, including myself, are very happy to go along with the Big Bang Theory. Many Christians quite like it because it fits rather nicely with Genesis 1-3. Now, as I'm sure you know, the theory starts like this. Once upon a time, 
all the matter that currently exists in the entire universe was condensed and compressed into one tiny speck that is smaller than a grain of sand. Now, question, why should such a phenomenal particle exist? Atheism has no answer. Then the theory says there was something called a quantum fluctuation which caused this particle to expand outwards, but as it expands outwards, it expands outwards at a perfectly controlled speed. And again, we would want to ask, why should something as complex as quantum mechanics go to all the trouble of existing? Again, atheism has no answer. Now the real showstopper, folks, is what happens next. If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. Leading physicist Paul Davis likens the chance that our universe would ever begin to exist as the same chance as firing a bow and arrow at the other side of the observable universe at a small target and hitting the mark. In other words, something that is not very likely. Now, why is our universe so unlikely? Why? Because of the number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the very earliest seconds of the universe's existence. So, for example, gravity and electromagnetism have to not just exist, but they have to exist and be perfectly matched to each other in their relative values. The strong and the weak nuclear force have to just exist, but then be finely tuned. The relationship between protons and electrons, the amounts of matter and antimatter, all of these conditions and many others have to not just turn up out of nowhere, but turn up with perfectly matched values any messing with any of the numbers, you touch any of the dials and no universe would ever have formed. Now we know that um, if we were any closer to the sun, we'd fry. If we were further away, we'd freeze. We know that if the moon wasn't the size that it is, with the orbit that it has, the tides of the ocean would swamp us. We know all that. But the degree of fine-tuning that we are talking about here with the origin of the universe is far more staggering than any of that. Roger Penrose, who developed our current understanding of black holes, computed the odds of the Big Bang producing by accident our ordered universe as, now here's the chance, 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it than the entire number of particles in the entire universe. Now, given how phenomenally unlikely an accidental universe is, it would seem to require an act of faith to say that God does not exist. It would seem to require an act of religious faith to actually say that the universe created itself. So all I'm saying there is that this is a valid question. It's a valid question to ask, 
How come the universe exists? What I'd love to do now is for the next five minutes or so is to take lots of questions and then once I've heard, I don't know, maybe ten questions, I'll try and answer maybe a couple, if particularly if we get similar questions coming. So any questions, we'll have one after the other and uh, if you can speak as loudly as possible, it will help the group. Any questions on this first point, bear in mind we're going to come on to the origin of organic life and we're going to come on to evolution. But any questions on this first point about how come the universe exists? Yes. Do you want to stand up and shout? Because I can't hear and I think everybody else would love to hear your question. The God particle. Yeah, okay. So the question is, what about the Higgs boson? What about the God particle? And where does that fit in? Any other questions? That's a really good question. Yeah, at the back. Yes. Yes, very good. So that, very good. I will definitely comment on that. Very good question. Any other questions on this one? Anyone else want to shout out a question at this early stage? Yes, over here. Hello. Um, I did read once in a book that um, I think Stephen Hawking had spoken to the Pope and they'd agreed that it was okay to go with the Big Bang theories provided he didn't ask what happened before the Big Bang. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's all very interesting, and hey, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, do you have a question about that? Well, is that the similar sort of situation you're talking about? Is that where you would say you are? Because you said you would, you actually... Okay, yeah, I understand the question. Yeah, we can come back to that. That's a good one. Yeah. Any others? Yeah, one over here. Yeah. Sorry, take religion out of it completely and just look at it from an atheist point of view. Why don't they accept the numbers that you're... Ah, what a super question, yes. Do you know what I mean? If, yes. you don't, if you just take religion and faith out of it, yes. speak to two... Um, yes, I mean, the answer to that is going to be actually, actually, it's almost impossible to take religion and faith out of it because everybody lives by faith, but that's a really good question. We can come back to that one. It's a good question, so I'm enjoying this. Yes, one over here. Do you also subscribe to um, people saying that the Earth is hundreds of millions of years old as well? Yeah, so on that one, the good news is we're definitely going to talk about that in the third part of the seminar. We're going to talk quite a lot about the age of the earth, uh, the age of the universe. Let's have two or three more, and then I'll, I'll comment on some of these. Any more? Yes? One down here? Go for it. Yeah, sure. A fifth century mathematician uh, quintet said random events become inevitable if the number of variables is large enough. Yes. So... If, if we're discussing parallel universe theory, then the number, yes. of, number of variables is always going to be enough in order to substantiate yes. what we're talking about. Yes. If you increase the number of variables, then if you have an infinite number of possibilities, the infinitely unlikely becomes inevitable. Very good. I've heard that many times. Any? Yeah, one over here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and is there any sort of explanation why... The pl some of the planets are spinning in the opposite direction to the way an explosion would have them spin. <laughs> what a great question. Yes, I don't know the answer to that. Um, so I, that is a very good question, and I don't know the answer to that. Okay. All right, well, let's, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's, let's come back on some of these. Thank you for these great questions. And I'm going to take the, um, the question that was from the gentleman to my right um, over here, which was this question. Okay, so let's imagine... Conversations happening, you say, okay, well, how come the universe exists? And the response is, I don't know, but maybe we're just part of a multiverse. Okay, so this is the next slide. 
Now, what's happening here is that the person you're speaking to, who might well be an atheist for all we know, comes back with a theory of multiple universes. Now, here what's happening is, and this is a, a recent, relatively recent development, here the atheist accepts the fine-tuning argument. They accept everything that's just been said. Okay? So this is commenting on uh, your question as well. So they say, okay, I agree. This universe looks infinitely, phenomenally unlikely. Therefore, could it be that actually there were an infinite number of possible hypothetical universes, in other words, an ensemble of multiverses, a multiverse of infinite possibilities, and all of these universes were all trying to come into existence, and the only reason why our universe came into existence is because it just so happened that our numbers worked. Okay? So this is a familiar response. I would like to say a number of things in response to this. First of all, first thing I could say, okay, would it not in the first instance be more scientific to study the one universe that we can observe rather than to hypothesize the existence of an infinite number of other universes for the existence of which there is absolutely no evidence at all? A couple of other things I think we could say. First of all, should we not, when we're thinking about the multiverse, go back to what is the most likely explanation for our universe? So here's an analogy that I might use. Let's imagine you're arrested in a foreign country and something drastic happens and uh, you're sentenced to death by firing squad. You're blindfolded. There are 100 trained marksmen, all of whom train their guns upon you. You're blindfolded and you hear this massive bang as they all fire, but 10 seconds later, somebody takes off your blindfold and you're still alive. Okay? Now, what is the most likely thing that you would conclude? Are you most likely to conclude, oh my goodness, what an extraordinary coincidence they all missed by accident? Or would you be more likely to conclude that they missed on purpose, that they deliberately missed and there was something else going on? Well, I think we'd be more likely to conclude that they missed on purpose, that there's something else going on. That must be the situation, I think. If you were to apply the, the principle of Occam's razor, this is something that scientists try and do, they look for the inference to the best explanation. So you don't look for the most unlikely, you start with the most likely explanation. So that's the first thing I'd say. I think this is a highly unlikely speculative idea. Second thing I'd say, let's imagine that it's true. Let's imagine that actually we, we do discover that actually there were a multiplicity of different universes all trying to come into existence. Let's imagine we discover that's true. That would not get rid of God. This is the irony of the multiverse argument from the atheist point of view. What have we got now? We have an infinity of universes all trying to come into existence. What super intellect could possibly have conjured up something so brilliant as an infinity of possible universes all trying to come into existence. We are looking for a transcendent cause of a multiplicity of universes. What, kind of, what, what will we call this super intellect who is clever enough to think up all of these things? We might end up calling that super intellect God. So the, the multiverse theory doesn't get rid of God. Also, if it really is true that every conceivable universe does exist, 
then presumably we have at least one universe in which Richard Dawkins is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And we also have a universe in which we have the Old Testament God of the Bible doing all the stuff that the Bible says that he did and predicting that one day a Jewish Messiah would come, a young man who actually would be born in a certain place and would live and do certain things and we would have the life, death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We'd have the God of the Bible. We'd have the apostles evangelizing the world. We would have in one of those universes, we would have the God of the Bible. Therefore, God does exist. So the multiverse theory actually doesn't do a very good job of getting rid of God. Let me come to another question. This is such a big question that I I had thought that it would come up, but I want to come to it because it's the main argument in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And it's simply this. You say, how come the universe exists? And an atheist responds, well, I don't know. This is what Dawkins does in The God Delusion. I don't know how the universe came to exist. But if you are suggesting that it must have been made by God, then my question to you is, who made God? Okay. How many of you have ever heard the question, who made God? Okay, there we are. This is why I'm coming to it. All right. So here's a response to the question, who made God? The theory, Einstein's theory of general relativity, is one of the best tested of all scientific theories, I have heard of 13 different independent tests which support general relativity. General relativity predicts that the Big Bang is not just the beginning of matter, in other words, that matter came to exist in a universe that already had a space-time dimension. Now, here's a phenomenal thing to try and get your head around. The Big Bang theory predicts At that beginning moment, space and time themselves began to exist. Space and time did not exist before the Big Bang moment. So it's not as if you've got a universe already existing and space and time and matter expands into it. No, space and time begin to exist at that beginning moment. Therefore, by definition, we are looking for a cause that is outside of the universe. By definition, we are looking for a cause which began time and space themselves, which inevitably is a transcendent cause that is outside of the universe. Now, what, what are we saying? We're saying we need a transcendent cause outside of time and space a cause that existed before time and space began to exist, but was powerful enough to bring time and space and matter into existence, well, surely a word for that transcendent first cause would be God. So, the very theory itself, I think, answers this question, who made God? We're not looking for a created God. This is the main blunder in the God delusion. You know, really, what it's saying is, hey, I don't believe in your created God. Well, you know, Christians and Muslims, for that matter, are not arguing for a created God. They're looking for a transcendent first cause that exists before anything else does, and that actually is what general relativity predicts. Now, you could say, and we had a reference to Stephen Hawking uh, on my left, you could say, as Stephen Hawking says in his book, The Grand Design, that once the law of gravity exists... Hawking says in the Grand Design, it is inevitable that the universe will come into existence. Now, that is a massive assertion. Once the law of gravity exists, it's inevitable that the universe will come into existence. But let's just say that we grant that premise. Let's say we agree with Hawking. 
that would still beg the question, well, why should the law of gravity exist? Why should there be in the universe a discoverable law that describes the motion of planets, for example? Why should gravity exist at all? Why should any laws exist? Now, I would dispute the assertion that once the law of gravity exists, it's inevitable that the universe will come into existence, simply because that is a, an assertion that cannot, even Hawking's contemporaries agree, it cannot be tested scientifically. It's an assertion. It's like something that somebody says to you in the pub. They make a sweeping statement. There is no prospect of any tests ever being applied to substantiate that argument. It seems to me that what Hawking has done in the grand design is he has just substituted a different G word. He's saying, I'm not going to use the G word God. I'm going to use the G word gravity, and everything flows from that. So it seems to me it's the same difference. Okay, let's hurry on now and, and look at the second question, which is how did the first living thing come to live on this planet? Okay, people talk about the development of life on Earth as if it was bound to happen, as if it was inevitable. Folks, nothing could be farther from the truth. The gap between non-living rocks and living organisms is the most profound divide in all of nature. There is a world of difference between the most complex non-living system, uh, like a snowflake, for example, and even the most basic or primitive imaginable living cell. Even if you did get all the building blocks of life and you did put them in place and you did put them in the ideal conditions, the chances of getting a single living cell to come about by chance are practically zero. And there are two huge problems here for the atheist. I've only got time to touch on them now. I do explain uh, both of them in my book, Aftershock, which if you're interested has got all the uh, material uh, for this afternoon's seminar in it. Here's the first problem. Could the first living cell have ever been constructed by chance? Folks, building the first ever living cell is a phenomenally complex business. Even the most basic, primitive, imaginable, conceivable cell still involves amino acids magically existing and then forming proteins to create life in a way that at the moment we can't even imagine. So I'd like to just show a video now, uh, if you want to go for it, Hannah, uh, and pl press play. And I'll just do a little voiceover on this, and we're going to go into the world of... Uh, in fact, what's quite exciting is to think that what's happening on the screen is actually happening inside your body as we speak. So this is how cells uh, reproduce. With the benefit of computer animation, we can actually enter inside a cell and we can view this remarkable system at work whereby a cell reproduces itself. This is obviously a process that's inevitable. This has got to happen. It's essential not just to carry on life, but to get life started in the first place. We're now inside the heart of the cell, and we can see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses containing the instructions needed to build every protein in an organism. This is the structure that... It was discovered at Cambridge University in 1953. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Then, in a second, you're going to see another molecular machine is going to turn up and copy these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. And when this clever process of transcription is complete. The slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex. Can you see it knocking on the door? Let me out. Hey. 
And then the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus says yes. And the messenger RNA strand is then directed, this is always a bit like Star Wars, I think, at this point, as it heads out, out of the cell into the brave new world. Um, the messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. And this is mega cool, this next bit. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. And it is their sequential arrangement that determines the type of protein that is manufactured. Can you see it being made there in the ribosome? And, the, and, and this particular one's almost finished. When this chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine. Now, this is important because it's in here that it will be folded to the precise shape that's going to be critical to its function. Now, I mean, you can immediately see that even the folding process is important. It has to be folded with these um, three-dimensional peptide bonds. Uh, and, and actually getting the peptide bonds is another challenge. This is all the detail that we're not going into. But anyway, in the barrel, um, the, it, it's folded into the precise shape that is critical to its function. And after the chain is folded into a protein, it's then released and shepherded by another molecular machine that also turns up out of nothing but out of magic. And that's how it's taken to the precise place where it's needed. Okay, that's the end of our little video clip. Now, here's the question. Why should amino acids just magically exist in the first place? Even if they did, you'd have to isolate the 20 or so amino acids which are usable for making proteins. Then you'd have to isolate them one by one, and you could only use the left-handed ones. And then you'd have to assemble the amino acids in exactly the right sequence. You'd have to join them with those really special peptide bonds that fold three-dimensionally. And even if you hit the jackpots, you wouldn't have life, all you'd have is one protein. You'd then need another probably 200 proteins to have the first chance of a sniff of life. Now, all of this presents a huge challenge for any atheistic explanation of life developing on Earth by chance. Now, you may well ask, okay, look, if it's so difficult um, to assemble these proteins by chance, how are they assembled and the answer is they're assembled by the greatest marvel in the whole of nature, a living code called DNA. Now, the origin of DNA is the second and biggest problem for atheism. The DNA code tells the amino acids to arrange themselves in a special sequence, and a longer stretch of code is called a gene. Now, here's how the code works. Let's imagine that I use my mobile phone now, and I text you, a genetic code. Now, it might look like this on your phone. And you look at that and you think, well, you know, that's just a rubbish message. But then I send you a second message. Make his nose like Brad Pitt's nose. Now, you can understand the second message because second time I communicated in a code that you understand, which is the English language. I assumed that you could read this code. I assumed that you know what a nose is. In fact, I even assumed that you know who Brad Pitt is. Now, the previous message of A, C, G, and T, all those letters were doing the same thing as this message. The difference is your body can read the A, C, T, G, C code, and there is a film star who is walking around in Hollywood right now 
carrying this message. Make his nose like Brad Pitt's nose. Now, where did the DNA code come from in the first ever living cell? Where did the code and the means of translating it come from? They're both needed from the word go. One is useless without the other. To get a code and a means of translating it out of nothing, you need to introduce quite a lot of intelligence. By contrast, a one-month-old baby could never have sent you a text message about Brad Pitt, which was powerful enough to reproduce an attractive nose. If the baby had got the phone to work at all, the baby would have sent you random gobbledygook. DNA code must have an information source. The phone is not the information. Did the phone think up the message? No. Folks, the phone doesn't know what a nose is. The point is this, information-rich messages which are powerful enough to reproduce life don't just happen. But when DNA arrives on the scene, it is an instruction book. This looks suspiciously like forward planning. So where did the first DNA code come from in the first ever living cell? It must have come from an intelligent source that existed before anything else did. Well, I mean the word that we have in the English language for a pre-existent intelligent being is God. So let's just recap because we have been going pretty fast on DNA. Here's what we're saying about DNA. We know it's an information code. We know it can be written down in letters. We know it's an intelligent message. We know it exists inside the cell. We know it has to exist inside the cell in order for the cell to work and to reproduce itself. This begs the question, where did the DNA code come from in the first ever living cell. The information is written in a code. Therefore, the code and the means of translating it are both needed from the word go. This presents a huge challenge for atheism. Let's use an analogy to make the point. Let's say I take this book and I ask you to bet. I ask you to bet on either of two explanations as to how this book came to exist. Here's a possible first explanation. This book came to exist because an author intended to create a distinct and ordered message. You can bet on that if you think that's a possibility. Here's a second alternative. This book is the product of a tornado that blew through a printing factory causing glue and paper and ink to fly up into the sky. And as the tornado swirled around... The bits of paper formed with the glue by chance to create this rather striking ordered shape, commonly known as a book. But even more remarkably, as the book fell to earth and the pages flicked in the wind, the ink fell at random on the pages to create the impression of a distinct and ordered message. Now, which of those two do you think is the more likely explanation? Folks, I'd be surprised if anyone here this afternoon is willing to bet on the tornado. Folks, when I have spoken to atheists on this subject, um, I've actually looked some in the eye and I've said, look, if you really want me to believe the accidental explanation for information, in this scenario, you would have to persuade me that in this case, the ink is intelligent enough to think up the plot line. 
That is ultimately what the atheistic explanation says, that the ink is clever enough to think up the novel's plot line. Folks, DNA is information, information powerful and complex enough to reproduce life. It has to come from somewhere. I said at the start that the man who discovered the double helix structure of DNA is Francis Crick. Now, Francis Crick is commonly regarded to understand the complexity of life developing on Earth by chance better than anybody else. And Francis Crick says there's no way that DNA could just happen on Earth. There's no conceivable chance explanation for the origin of DNA on this planet. Okay? Francis Crick is also an atheist. Question. Okay. So how did DNA get here? His answer is spaceships. He says DNA arrived billions of years ago in a prehistoric spaceship sent to Earth by aliens. The man who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA in 1953 honestly suggests, seeing as we can tell, we know that life could never have originated on Earth by chance, it must have been transported here by intelligent life from elsewhere in the galaxy by spaceship. Uh, this theory is called directed panspermia. He says in his book Life Itself, quote, microorganisms traveled in the head of an unmanned spaceship sent to Earth by a higher civilization which developed elsewhere billions of years ago, close quote. Now, I would humbly suggest to you that he hasn't solved the problem. He has simply moved the problem to the planet Krypton. So I would say, if somebody is saying, okay, well, evolution explains everything, I would be tempted to ask, okay, how can you be so sure that evolution explains everything when it cannot explain how life started on Earth? Now, folks, we're now two-thirds of the way through, and at this point, in a conversation with your friend, I would be tempted to quit at this point, if I'm completely honest, because at this point, so far... Um, we've seen there is no adequate alternative explanation for the existence of the universe, and there is no adequate alternative explanation for the existence of life. Now, let's be clear. Nothing that I've said today proves that God exists. And I'll just say that again so that we're all absolutely clear. Nothing that I have said today proves that God exists. But we have shown that when looking at the two most basic preliminary questions that there is good reason to think that God, or at least something like God, exists. In fact, I would say if you apply Occam's razor and you do look for the inference to the best explanation, or the most reasonable explanation, then when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, and when you look at the question of the origin of organic life on Earth, then when you're looking at the source of information, yes, a transcendent first cause is the most obvious explanation. Now, that still leaves the massive question of, okay, once you've got a universe and a planet Earth and you've got a single-celled organism living on the surface of that planet, did that single-celled organism evolve over millions of years into anatomically modern humans? Well, that's the question we're going to come to next. Okay? So let's just pause on this second one. I've raced through the second question. Any questions on the origin of life? Anybody want to ask a question on this one before we come to the question of evolution? Yes, over here on my right. Go for it. When you show the book, you show a complete product. If you were to actually see very small pieces of paper, 
with tiny little bits of black, something like ink on it, then you would start to then perhaps question whether or not that the book is the final product of a process that led to its existence. If you just go straight to the book, yes. it makes it impossible. But from the point of view that RNA can explain processes that might contribute to the origins to produce DNA, yep. then now you've got a step preceding the DNA. How okay. do you handle that? Okay, it's a really good question. I'll come back to that. It's a question about what's called the RNA world. Any other questions on, on this one? Yeah. And the back. Mm, I was just wondering that does God exist for animals as well? And if it does, do they need to worship him like humans? Or in another way, only why should only human worship God? Wow. Okay. That's a good question. Why should only humans worship God? Any other questions on this subject? Anybody else want to ask a question at this time? Okay, well, I mean, oh, Terry, yeah? Go for it. Just, oh, thank you. Um, just on the subject of animals, <laughs> I was just thinking about, as opposed to the tornado theory, we have the typewriter theory and the chimpanzee. Yeah, okay. Where you have all of the time in the... Okay. Well, look, seeing as that question has come up twice, let me answer that, and then I think time's against us. We probably need to race on to the final question. So earlier on, somebody else asked the same thing. You know, given an infinite amount of time, given an infinite number of possi possibilities, surely the infinitely unlikely becomes inevitable. In John Lennox's book, Has Science Buried God? Or Hasn't Science Buried God? God's Undertaker. He reproduces some academic research because we are at a huge advantage over even people 10, 20 years ago in that computer modeling now is such, we, we've got such sophisticated computers that believe it or not, and incidentally the argument is if you put a monkey in front of a typewriter and give him an infinite amount of time it is inevitable that eventually he will type out the complete works of Shakespeare and this is something that you often hear said Conveniently, it is now, believe it or not, possible to simulate artificially random key striking over an infinite amount of time. And then you'll have to read the book to get the maths. Incidentally, he's a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. Um, but anyway, so if you read um, God's Undertaker, you'll see that the most likely thing is that the, given an infinite amount of time, given random key striking, that the monkey would not even complete a sentence or a word, or, or a line, I should say. He might do a word, but not even a line of the complete works of Shakespeare. So there is empirical research on that subject. Folks, I, I think I should race on to this last question because I know that for many here, this will be the most pressing question, which is the question of evolution. Let me just define what is meant by evolution. Folks, nobody, at least nobody I know or nobody I've ever come across, is disputing that evolution on a small scale has taken place. What I mean by that is microevolution, uh, you get adaptions, you get variations, you get uh, an infinite, you can breed an infinite number of varieties of dogs, um, small horses become big horses, um, you get different sizes of finch beaks, you get variations, you get adaptions. So 
you, you, you know, if someone says to me, well, Adrian, do you believe in evolution? I'd say, well, what do you mean do I believe in evolution? I mean, w- why does what I believe come into it? It's a fact, you know, that, that, that microevolution is a fact. I mean, natural selection is a fact. You know, you do get the survival of the fittest. You do get the weak killed by the strong. So there's no, dis- there's no controversy about evolution on a small scale. What I think most people are talking about when they use the word evolution is they're talking about macroevolution, evolution on a big scale. And I just want to mention three Christian responses to this question. And at the very end, I'll tell you which of these three I personally take, although I'm not sure my own opinion is particularly important, but I can run you through these. And I shall try and do a very even-handed job as I do. Folks, there are lots of different Christian responses and I've lumped all the huge variety of Christian responses to evolution into just three categories. So for those of you who know about these things, forgive how I'm about to make a number of blunders, but for the sake of time, let's race through this. First view and the second view, the young earth creationist and the old earth creationist, both of these views state that common descent an unbroken chain of events from a single-celled organism all the way through to anatomically modern humans like you and me, both the first two views say that common descent has not taken place. Both of the first two views um, say that that process has not happened, and the third view says that that process has taken place, but actually God supervised it, and they disagree about to what extent. I mean, how, how much micromanaging did God do at any point in this process? The theistic evolutionists disagree amongst themselves. Some say lots of, lots of micromanaging. Or actually, if you listen to the Archbishop of Canterbury's debate with Richard Dawkins on the Church of England website, he takes the view virtually none at all. You know, God gets it started and then it's completely hands-off and you know, God's not involved at all. He doesn't do any micromanaging. Okay, so the first view... Young Earth Creationists, um, this view has, um, and I should say that all three of these views probably are represented on this site. Probably all three of these views you'd find people possibly in the seminar and probably you'd find, an, you'd find people all over the site who would take these views. You could have even a church leadership team where you have three leaders and each takes one of these three views and they can still lead the church together. So it is possible, I think, for Bible-believing Christians to disagree on this subject but to agree on a whole lot of other stuff. Okay, first view, young earth creationism. Young earth creationism um, is the only one of these three views that challenges the reigning orthodoxy that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. Young Earth creationism disagrees with the commonly held view, and one would have to say that this is a massive consensus across the scientific community, that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. This view would say, some of them would say, the Earth is as young as 20 to 30,000 years old. So we have a dramatically young Earth. This view would take the most literal of the three interpretation of the early chapters of the book of Genesis, this view would say that actually um, the days that are referred to in the book of Genesis are 24-hour days that God created the world in six 24-hour periods. And they would say, you know, if you were to say, well, hang on a minute, how do you account for the amazing, deep, vast fossil deposits of fossil fuels like oil and gas? I mean, how... What kind of pressure? I mean, how could you ever get all that fossil fuel so deep in the earth? They would say, ah, well, the universal flood. So the young earth view places an enormous weight upon 
the effect of Noah's flood in creating the mineral deposits which keep us alive today. The young earth view would also have uh, dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. I mean, they would be very small dinosaurs. And if you want to learn more about that particular view, which to its great credit from an evangelical Christian point of view is the most literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. Um, There's a number of organizations. The most famous is Answers in Genesis and the leading proponent of Answers in Genesis is a man called Ken Ham. So if you wanted to find out more about it, just Google Answers in Genesis. There's lots of stuff about the young earth creationist view. Second view there is the old earth creationist view and they disagree with the young earth creationists about the age of the earth. The the old earth creationist view says, look, the Hebrew word yom, which is in the first five books of the Bible, which is translated as day, even within the first five books of the Bible, we find that word yom used to describe a long period of time. It doesn't have to be. Even in the first five books of the Bible, it's not necessarily a 24-hour period. So they would say maybe the use of the word day could be interpreted to be a bit like the use of the word day when I might say to you, in the day of Queen Victoria, the Industrial Revolution blossomed in Manchester and its environs, you know, I might say that, a long period of time. I'm not talking about a 24-hour period when Manchester took off as an industrial centre. I'm saying in the day of Queen Victoria is a long period of time. So they would say that the 24-hour days are not actually necessarily... They don't have to be 24-hour days. It could be a long period of time. After all, the old earth creationists would say, isn't it the case that on the seventh day God rested? Isn't it the case that we're still in that seventh day? Isn't it the case that right now that seventh day has not yet been completed? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Therefore, we know the seventh day is a long day. Who's to say that the first six weren't long days? Also, the old earth creationist view would have enormous scientific support from the world of cosmology. The biggest challenge for the young earth view is that they have failed to persuade any of the broader scientific community in terms of, for example, the question of the distance that light travels. So one of the main reasons why old earth creationists take the view that they do is because of the overwhelming evidence that light has taken an enormous amount of time to travel from the extremities of the universe to where we are now, and because actually the uh, flood wouldn't have been powerful enough to produce the fossil deposits that we've got. We need, at le- we need a whole two and a half cycles of planets forming, breaking up. We do need billions of years to create the mineral deposits which are essential for... Um, uh, advanced life on the surface of our planet. So those are the, those are, uh, can have a few words, if you like, on the first two of our views, on the young earth creationist view, the old earth creationist view. I would say, having been involved um, speaking at a number of New Frontiers churches over many years, the vast majority of churches within the New Frontiers family of churches would take one of these first two views. The third view, you do find it, but it's really quite unusual to find um, uh, lots of people in a New Frontiers church or leading a New Frontiers church who believe in theistic evolution. So it's it's not unheard of. There are many people, in fact, I can think of several right now, but it's relatively unusual. I'm not not sure what that's worth, but it perhaps gives you some perspective. The theistic evolutionary guys, they say, now, look, when you are talking 
to a typical non-Christian person in Britain today. And of course, growing up in our school system, inevitably one is exposed to Darwinian evolution all the way, common descent from a single-celled organism all the way to advanced human life. Well, of course, when you're having the conversation with a typical non-Christian, the moment comes when they say, well, hang on, hasn't Darwinian evolution disproved or contradicted the Bible, if you take the theistic evolutionary view, you say, well, no, you know, I'm happy to go along with the view that evolution has taken place. I'm happy to go along with the view that common descent has taken place. They would say, look, it doesn't really matter what mechanism God may or may not have used. You know, just because we've discovered a mechanism doesn't make God redundant, superfluous, God may well have supervised the mechanism. Hey, if we found a mechanism, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. Now, I personally would go along with that little bit of reasoning. That seems to be common sense. But they would say, yes, there has been common descent. Yes, the universe is old. Yes, it's 13.7 billion years old. And uh, through two twin motors, through uh, random mutation acting on natural selection, Um, we can account for the vast uh, variety of animal and plant life that we see around us today. Now, the theistic evolutionary view, even by their own admission, does face some challenges. At least some passages of the Bible do seem to be saying something quite dramatically different. So, for example, when you read the book of Genesis and you read about the creation of Adam, the first man, it does not look as if... Adam is the son of a pre-existing hominid who gives birth to Adam. Adam, of course, looks exactly like his dad, or virtually the same as his dad, just like you you and I look similar to our dad. It doesn't look like at that point that God sent his Holy Spirit into this hominid, making him a human being. That isn't obviously what the book of Genesis is saying. So the old earth view would say, yes, absolutely, there were all sorts of hominids that existed all over the earth, so from... You know, 150,000 years ago to <coughs> excuse me, 30,000 years ago in Europe, Neanderthals uh, were the predominant hominid. And then it seems around 50,000 years ago that anatomically modern humans moved into Europe. And we don't quite know what happened. But anyway, the Neanderthals died out fairly quickly after that. So the old earth view would say, yes, there were all these hominids that existed all over the uh, ancient world. Yes, they were placed in the dates that most evolutionists think they were. You know, some of them were 1.5 million years ago, like Homo agaster, for example. Some of them were more ancient than that. But they would say these are hominids that were created by God and then went extinct. Whereas the theistic evolutionary guys are saying, no, these may well have been transitionary forms on the way to humans as they are today. So you could say the great advantage, if you like, of the theistic evolutionary view is that you don't have this train smash in the first five minutes of the conversation with a non-Christian where you've all of a sudden got to tell them that everything your biology teacher ever told you is wrong. You say, well, no, 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 I I accept it all. Evolution has happened. The question is, could God have supervised it? So there's, first of all, I'd say, if you want to find out more about the young earth view, answers in Genesis, Ken Ham. The best proponent, in my opinion, of the old Earth view is um, Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, who's a Canadian astronomer. (coughs) And his website is called Reasons to Believe, or www.reasons.org. 
And on the theistic evolution review, the best um, proponent, I think, is a guy called Francis Collins, former director of the Human Genome Project, and his website is called BioLogos. Okay, guys, we officially have five minutes left, and I suspect that we've not got enough time for all the questions. But any questions on this highly controversial, emotionally charged subject of evolution? Any questions at the end on these? Yes, over here to my left. Yeah. Say to the to the fact that there appears to be death before the fall. Yes. Both of those two yes. cases. Okay. So a hugely controversial question within Christianity is that if you have death before the fall, then surely that really does not just give you problems in the Old Testament. That blows a hole right in the middle of the Book of Romans, doesn't it? In Romans 5. Now, what? both the old earth creationist and the theistic evolutionist say in response to that is, hang on a minute, let's go back to the text. In the text, it's definitely talking in Romans about human death. Okay? Well, for the old earth view, human death before the fall is not a problem. Okay? Because in the old earth view, you are fully accepting that there was animal death before the fall, and that animal death before the fall is not necessarily a problem. In fact, creation was very good even though animals were dying because you need to have animal death in order to have life as we have it today so in the old earth view you'd also say hey you you have to have plate tectonics you know it's not as if god created the world and then after the fall plate tectonics came along and there were like earthquakes and tsunamis and so on no the old earth view says hey look if you want to have any advanced life on the face of the earth you've got to have plate tectonics from the word go so the question really is not about death before the fall. It's whether there's a problem with animal death before the fall. And I think that's really a question for the people that write commentaries on the Book of Romans and so on. And that's a really good question, um, which is, is a live issue. In fact, if you tuned in to an American Christian radio phone-in between an old earth and a young earth creationist, you can bet they're arguing about that very question. That's the thing that they argue about. Any others? Over to my left, yes. The most important thing for me um, is um, <coughs> how these views affect the way I read the Bible, because it's such an important book to me, and, and God has used it so hugely in my life. That, um, which, from your opinion, would be the view um, that the Bible most supports, or doesn't undermine what, how the Bible would work in our lives? Oh, well, that's a really good question, and I, I'm not sure I can give you a good answer. I can tell you that my own view is that I'm an old earth creationist. I did promise I'd tell you at the end. Um, so I'm an old earth creationist, so I take the second of those three views. I'm not sure I could honestly say that my view would do the best at that, but there are lots of reasons why I think it's the best interpretation of both the Bible and the scientific evidence about the age of the earth and the origin of the universe and so on and how old the universe is so it's a combination of both I think overall it's the best explanation if we had more time I'd explain all the reasons why okay any others we've got a couple of minutes um, did you have a question at the front no sorry uh, okay anybody else at the very back there's a couple of folks here in the aisle I said we'd finish at four, and we will, don't worry. Yeah, go Would for Would you it. class hominids as people or animals? And if, in, yeah. when in Genesis it talks about people outside the Garden of Eden, yeah. would you think they're hominids okay. or what? 
Okay, so my answer to that, now here I am going to reveal, this is part of my position as an old earth creationist, okay, so I do think that there were all kinds of hominids that existed before anatomically modern humans. Um, the evidence is that anatomically, I mean, this is, what, this is what everybody thinks in terms of the scientific community, that anatomically modern humans exploded onto the scene sometime between 100 and 50,000 years ago. Now, to you and me, that's a massive variation 100 to 50, that's, we're talking about 50,000 years, give or take. That's massive. Now, if you can put that to one side, if you look at all the evidence for the way that Homo sapiens sapiens colonated the... I mean, we, as soon as we arrive, we take over. Everywhere in the world is colonated, it, we colonized very quickly with the exception of North and South America. The reason for that is that up until about 14,000 years ago, there wasn't enough food on the Bering Straits, on the Bering Land Bridge for humans to get across, but as soon as we get across, by about 10,000 years ago, human beings had gone all the way down the west coast of uh, North America and all the way down the, south, the, the west coast of South America. So you know, my view is, yes, there were all kinds of hominids that existed. You know, you and I could mention some of the most famous ones, which would obviously be the Neanderthals. Neanderthals are unique because the, they're the only ones that we can do DNA testing on. So we know for a fact that the DNA from DNA tests, that we are not descended from Neanderthals. Now, that might not be a big deal to you and me, but bear in mind that when I was at university, which is only 20 years ago or so, that was the uh, commonly held view, that human beings were descended from Neanderthals, which we now know isn't the case because there's too much variety in their DNA compared to ours. We can't do DNA testing beyond that because we can't get DNA tests from more than 100,000 years ago. So you've then got all these other fossil finds all over the world. You've got Homo agaster, you've got Homo erectus, you've got Homo habilis, and there's just loads of them all over the place, and, and they're constantly being renamed. I think, as an old earth creationist, that these were animals that God created that then became extinct. There is a profound difference between them and an anatomically modern human. In fact, there's a profound difference between a Neanderthal and an anatomically modern human. So I would class hominids, you could say, you know, yeah, okay, they're a, a genus or a species, but I would say that there's a huge difference between us and even the most sophisticated um, hominid. But clearly that's, I've just given you like a, a headline or an assertion. Um, folks, I said we finish at four. I'm just going to give you one sentence, then I'm going to stop. Obviously, if you want to stay and ask questions, you can. I just want to say this as I finish. There is a huge danger for us at this point. The huge danger for us is that it is possible to win the argument and lose the person. We must be respectful. Folks, all our friends are doing are repeating what they have been told both at school and on the TV. There's this massive media message coming through and all they're doing is believing what they've been told. So we must be respectful. And we must seek to win the person and not seem to be clever or trying to win the argument. If we can show them all the love of God, you know, it might be that by helping them move into their new home or offering them dinner, you actually do more to show them the love of God 
than in a long detailed discussion illustrated by video that shows that natural mechanisms cannot actually account for the vast majority of life and that actually random mutation acting on natural selection is not a powerful enough motor to account for. You, know, you might actually do more by being friends to them and giving their kid a lift to football practice than by all of this. You get that? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for so many people coming along to have a look at this um, fascinating question. And we just pray, Lord, as we seek to show others all the love of God, that you'd help us to be respectful and to make sure that we win hearts and not just minds. I pray for all of those who genuinely do think that science has disproved the Bible. And there may be millions of people within 100 miles of us now who genuinely think science has disproved the Bible. For them, it is a genuine objection. And we thank you, Lord, that there is nothing to fear in what science has discovered about our world. And we pray that you would help literally millions of British people to discover the truth about who you really are, Lord Jesus. And may they find you. May they find the jewel of history. May they find the resurrected, risen Jesus Christ for themselves. We pray, Lord, that you'd show them the truth and we pray, Lord, you'd reveal it through us for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much.